You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back. In an earlier podcast episode, Sarah Churchwell said that the United States does well in telling stories about the things that unify us, but less well in telling the stories that divide us. And I'd like to add another story to the list of things that we're not always so great at talking about or telling about, and that's the history of socialism. All too often, socialism is equated to the Soviet Union or Chinese politics of one-party systems that suppress democracy. And too often we think about the Cold War instead of, say, the 1840s, 1850s, and 1860s when Karl Marx was at his most prolific. And when we think about Marx, we think of Germany and Britain and France. We don't necessarily think of the United States. But socialism, the idea came to America before the Civil War and influenced the politics of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era in profound ways, from the populists of Texas to the Grange in the Plains to the trade unionists in the cities. There was also the Socialist Labor Party, a dedicated socialist party that began in 1876, the same date that so many of us consider to be the start of the Gilded Age. Now, like any political party, the SLP was intellectually diverse, and members had varying ideas on how to bring about the socialist revolution. One of the main divisions centered on the idea of race and who was fit to bring about socialist reform. Wasn't the struggle of humankind the struggle of class? What did Marx say about race? To help us answer these questions and explore the Socialist Labor Party of America, I'm joined by Lorenza Costaguda, a professor of history at the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom. Lorenzo has been studying this topic for some time and has written articles and book chapters on the Second International and Chinese immigration in the United States as it relates to socialist movements. I am delighted to welcome him to the show and to discuss his debut book, Workers of All Colors Unite, Race and the Origins of American Socialism. Welcome to the show, Lorenzo. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great. And um, this is a fantastic book. For so many reasons, I don't often want to start off the show with definitions, but I thought for today's discussion, it's probably best to get some definitions out of the way. Yeah. And I, I wanted to start off with socialism. And I don't mean that in the uh, abstract sense of the word, but really, what is American socialism? Is it Marxist? Um, I know it's not just about the labor movement because you talk about that in your book, but can you explain in your own words what American socialism is? It's a, it's a difficult thing to do um, because... 
I mean, what I what I try to say in the in the book is that um, we shouldn't be focusing on like a simple version of American socialism as if it was something different than what we understand socialism to be. But then uh, uh, trying to define what socialism is is actually quite complicated. Um, if you look historically, you can kind of see, especially for the 19th century, uh, it's very wrong to focus exclusively on Marxism uh, as what socialism is, because socialism means many different things to different people. Uh, you have maybe a European origin of it, but then uh, as I also show in the book, but as you know very well, uh, people go from Europe to America and then they make socialism their own way on the basis of uh, what they find in the country. Uh, for the United States, socialism uh, can be constructed as something that is political, but also moral. Uh, it's linked to, to a specific understanding of the individual, what the individual uh, can do, should be doing, uh, what the state can do. So I think that uh, it's very much philosophical and political at the same time. Um, in my in my book, I try to to define and to understand it as something that is a political movement, um, and uh, that could be a starting point. But then I'm sure that then we'll we'll define better uh, what we mean by that. I, obviously, the context matters so much for this, and what I'm interested in is is your explanation of how socialism and socialist ideology spread in the United States. And for this, I want to bring in the German immigrants because they play such a big part in your story. So how do they how do they make socialism uh, uh, resonate across the, the United States? Germans, they arrive in the United States. I mean, there are two things I would say uh, that is important to stress in this, this context. Uh, the first is they arrive to the United, in the United States and like many immigrants, they need to find a place in the society. And to an extent, they come with a baggage. And the baggage is socialism, but it's also like a set of Republican ideas, uh, small r, of course, and uh, a set of understanding of what democracy is, what citizenship is. Um, and they bring all these ideas, but then they find uh, different ideologies and different ways of like dealing with the state, as we were saying, uh, and dealing with politics in general. And um, so from their perspective, bringing socialism means bringing an, an understanding of how you uh, interact with the state, um, but also finding a way of like organizing social relationships. So this is the way in which they bring this ideology in the country. They do that um, in specific uh, contexts. It's more, as you know, I mean, my book is more history about urban contexts than, than the rural, uh, because that's where they go. That's where they are employed, uh, especially those that are affiliated with the Socialist Labour Party, which is essentially the protagonist of my book. Uh, they tend to live in these contexts. And so for them, uh, it's really trying to understand how they can organize also municipalities uh, on the basis of their ideology. And the Germans, though, have a very specific way of spreading the message, right? Don't they? That's perhaps different maybe than some other immigrant communities. And that seems to be the focus of your book, too. It's it's the press, right? I mean, how important yeah. is the press for socialism? 
It's absolutely crucial. Uh, the press is the means, uh, that's the point I make in the book, the press really is the means through which socialism is spread. Um, we are talking about local newspapers, we are talking about uh, very often weekly, sometimes daily newspapers. Um, it's very, you see this button, whenever they manage to put together like a socialist and SLP branch, the first thing that they want to do is start a newspaper. Uh, even if there are already so many newspapers around, but that's really the way in which they think they can um, have their message known around. Uh, they can shape better their message. That's where they talk. That's where they converse. So it's a it's a site of conversation. And there is a mechanism and you can see that uh, you you take the article and then you find the article in another newspaper. There is like a circulation of the news that is very spread to, through this local press, that is all linked to the party, uh, but it's also very independent. There's no full control um, by the party of what is being published in this press. There's always the attempt from the center of the party to try and control it, to try and have a national paper that kind of sets the line, the political line of the party, but that actually very rarely happens. It only happens at the end of the book in the 1890s. It's quite interesting uh, to, to like know the fact that Daniel De Leon, that is probably one of the most known leader of the SLP, he's never been the secretary of the party. He was in charge of the English press. That was the position that gave him the power within the party because the press is so important to define what the party uh, is doing as an organization. And the decentralization of the newspapers is great too, because that explains, we're going to get into that a little bit about the different me metropolitan areas that, that your book covers. I want to bring in the other major intersecting thing of your book, which is race. You know, this book is about race and American socialism. And the first question I have about race is about the various versions of racial uh, ideologies that are at play here. And what I loved about your book was the pains that it takes to show the differences among racialized ideologies or ideas of race. There's Darwinism, uh, but you also reference Lamarckianism, which is uh, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, the idea that generations can change or things can change within a generation. You also reference anthropological and sociological theories. All of these have their proponents. How do the versions of racialized thinking, how do they intersect with other major dividing lines in your book about class, modernity, capitalism. And I know this is like an immense question that I'm rambling on about, but I also know that you have the answers for this because you wrote a book that that talks about all these intersections. So um, take it away, Lorenzo. <laughs> I'll do my best. Yeah, this is essentially the core of my book. Uh, what I've been trying to do is explaining how these different ideologies that you have uh, that try to answer the fundamental question that many not just intellectuals, but many people at the time are asking, which is like a question about uh, racial diversity, about the different groups that the, humanity, the human race is made of and how that came into being. Um, so all these different theories that you have, social, uh, social Darwinism, Darwinism, that are two different things, geographical determinism, anthropology, these are all different answers that um, have been, that are proposed at the time. What well, the point that I'm trying to make and the conversation that I'm trying to reconstruct is essentially from a socialist point of view, from the point of view of like these people that define themselves as socialists, 
their urgency is to try to explain how socialism can be compatible with these theories. And because they see these theories as like the cutting edge scientific ideas of the time. And essentially the thinking is, since socialism is also from their point of view, like a science, they need to combine, they need to be combined in some way. This is not a question that only American socialists are asking, of course. I mean, Karl Kotsky starts his career as an intellectual as essentially a, a scientist of evolutionism. And he spends a lot of time and a lot of pain and Bernstein is the same. I mean, there are so many European intellectuals that are asking the same questions, but they have distinct conversations. And what is happening in the US, I argue is peculiar, uh, because the US is a country, as we know very well, that has so much internal racial and ethnic diversity. So it's not just an intellectual question. It's a question that needs to be answered because there are decisions to be taken on the workplace. Um, there are decisions in the different contexts in which this conversation is going on, but there are decisions to be taken by the party on how to behave uh, with these different minorities that you have in the workplace. What do you do with them? So from the point of view of the socialists, it's trying to make their doctrine appealing for this context in which talking about racial diversity is so important, but at the same time, making it compatible with something that goes beyond capitalism. You mentioned capitalism, and that's the big question. I mean, social Darwinism, the genius of social Darwinism is making uh, a conversation about racial difference compatible with the way in which you organize society and compatible with capitalism as well. From the point of view of socialists, the point is understanding how you make racial difference compatible with something that goes beyond capitalism. Uh, so how you make racial difference compatible with socialism, essentially. I love this because your book, you know, it makes a very clear distinction between the intellectual arguments around socialism and then the labor movement as well, which is a more practical, I suppose, uh, reaction to industrial capitalism. So what is what effect do these intellectual debates, what effect does it have on the labor movement in America? I suggest that the way in which the conversation is organized uh, is very much. And I mean, well, ultimately, what I try to argue in the book is that if you look at race, you can really understand many of much of the thinking that is going on. Uh, on the workplace uh, and within the labor movement. Um, so you can really use race as a lens to interpret different ways and different politics within the Socialist Party and surely beyond that. Um, I argue that there are two main approaches that can be recognized, two areas of opinion that can be recognized, that try to square, that try to find an answer to the question that I was asking before. How do you make racial difference compatible with socialism, with something, with an anti-capitalist approach? Um, and how do you organize um, your response on the workplace? And the two main approaches are on one side, internationalism, working class internationalism. And on the other side, I define this scientific rationalism. Um, so the first answer is probably the one that might be a bit more uh, known, which is a sort of a standard socialist answer to this problem, which is essentially um, in the conversation between race and class, what we really need to be focusing on is class. Uh, race is an artifice, is an ideology that has been created by capitalists to divide the working class. 
So we need to be focusing on what puts us together as workers, which is our positionality as worker in the capitalist system. And we have a commonality of interest, and we need to be focusing on that. Um, and that comes with an answer, and the answer is, we shouldn't be focusing on the ballot box. We shouldn't be focusing on voting. We shouldn't be focusing on what we can do on the workplace. So small incremental improvements on the workplace that we can achieve through trade unions. So our means should be to be focusing on trade unions in the first place, because that's where we can improve our living conditions and build socialism. On the other side, there are the scientific rationalists that want to answer to the questions and kind of believe more, are more supporters of a variety and a patchwork really of pseudoscientific theories like social Darwinism or anthropology or uh, geographical determinism that essentially say that we need to recognize that evidence and we need to square that and make socialism appealing on the ballot box. And we need uh, workers to vote for us. And that's the main way in which we can achieve socialism. So on this side of the conversation, there is a lot of like trying to square the circle, trying to go after the voters that depending on where you are and depending on the moment, but they tend to have white supremacist positions. It's quite evident, for example, uh, in California in, 19, in the 1870s or in the 1880s, when you have a small percentage of Chinese workers that everyone is going against. And for the socialists there, the point is trying to understand how you can obtain the vote of these white workers that are very much against the Chinese immigration. And for them, then, there is an attempt to kind of put together a sort of racial egalitarianism with uh, a socialist theory, but the two are so incompatible that these intellectual devices that they put together are not really tenable, uh, ultimately. Uh, but in that, in trying to go deeper into the conversation there, you can understand how these theories of race are really rationalizing socialist ideology in this moment in the Gilded Age, in the, not just in the US, but in my book, I deal with Iran. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, I, what I like so much about this is that it really clarifies a lot of the, not just the intellectual debates that are going on within socialism during the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, but the actual struggles that they're having to put their ideas into practice. And I'm going to come back to that later on in the show. I want to ask you about the American left today. But before we get there, it, you know, you've mentioned the Socialist Labor Party as being the protagonist of your book, and it is. And I think we owe it a little bit of time here to explain what the Socialist Labor Party is, when it starts, because it starts in 1876, which many of us see as the beginning of the so-called Gilded Age, right? So it's, it's critically important for that. And I want to talk a little bit about one of its early leaders, the Texan uh, Adolf Dewey, or Dewey, I think his name is pronounced. Dewey, yeah. Dewey, okay. So what is the Socialist uh, uh, Labor Party and who is Adolf Dewey? So the Socialist Labor Party is the party that comes out of like a set of different small socialist parties that you have uh, during Reconstruction, uh, Illinois, New York, and they're scattered across the Midwest and the North. And they all federate together in 1876 with a different name. So the first name is Working Men's Party of the United States. That is changed to Socialist Labor Party in 1877. Um, it's one of the organizations that filter into the SLP is also the First International. The First International ends its life in New York. And it's like um, officially closed down by Friedrich Sorge, that is the last secretary of the First International, that then transitions into the Working Men's Party of the United States. Um, it is a party that is founded on the back of what is going on in Germany, when there is a union between the Marxists and the Lasallians, and American, German-American socialists, they federate together, they gather in Philadelphia in 1876, that when you are celebrating the centennial of the, um, of the nation, and they put together this party. That is essentially the leading socialist organization throughout the Gilded Age. It's a party that is slightly bigger when it's founded, and it becomes very, very small in the 1880s, and then it picks up again um, in the 1890s. It continues to exist. It probably still exists today. I mean, they, <laughs> it, it's like- I looked a, it up. I looked it up. It does yeah, still yeah. exist today. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I think that up until a certain time, there was like a group somewhere in California that was meeting. Now I don't even know if there is that, but officially still exists. So it's a very long-standing feature of the American political scenario. It continues to have some influence throughout the 20th century. But yeah, I mean, Adolf Dewey is one of the leaders I focus on, which is less talked about than others that I mentioned in the book. But he's such a fascinating character. Um, it's like it's throughout the book I kept like stumbling into him and him and it's not really present in the literature. He's um, 
from Germany, from what is now the eastern part of Germany, uh, born in 1819. Um, he lives in around the area of like Leipzig, essentially, for the first part of his life. And then he arrives, um, moves to the United States in the 1850s. He, he arrives in 1853. And he, the first place where he lands is actually Texas. He drives like a group of German immigrants to Texas. That is now becoming like a beacon for many German immigrants that are staying in West Texas in that, in that moment. The problem is that the guy, when he arrives in Texas, decides to fund um, an abolitionist paper, and vehemently anti-slavery paper. Um, and he manages to stay in Texas for like a couple of years, three years precisely. And then his abolitionist activity forces him out of Texas. Um, Texans don't don't take it lightly the fact that he's going against slavery and then he has like a life as an activist in a variety of labor movements in the late 1850s and late uh, and in the 1860s and he becomes one of the figures that then goes joins the working men's party of the United States and the SLP and he's one of the main leaders of the party until his death in 1886 um, he really is a leader that for the argument of the book is very important because he represents a specific strand of intellectual thought. He um, grows up intellectually uh, in the uh, German-speaking area in a moment in which all these, theories, like pre-Darwinian moment, in a moment in which there are different theories to talk about uh, racial difference that are very much connected to language, they are connected to geology, they are connected to geographical determinism. But then when Darwinism arrives, he puts Darwinism in the mix. So he writes extensively about Russian diversity, is one probably one of the most prolific socialist writers about the subject in the period. But his theory is very much a patchwork of different approaches that really coexist. But what is interesting is that he really embraces the idea of like a scientific approach to Russian diversity, but at the same time is very progressive is pro-immigration, is Russia legalitarian, he speaks in favor of Chinese immigration, he speaks in favor of Black Americans, is one of the few that is actually looking at African Americans in detail in this period. But from the perspective of someone embracing theories of race. So that's really the contradiction that we need, that I try to unpack in the book. And I try to explain where this very contradictory characters are coming from. And it wasn't that uncommon at the time within socialist circles. There, there is another side, though, too, that you take up in your book as well, the anti-Darwinists among the social Socialist Labor Party. Who, who are they? So the anti-Darwinists are essentially the ones that are saying that Darwin, scientific understandings of race, they really have nothing to do with um, conversations about the workplace, conversations about politics, and conversations about um, about all these all these issues. Um, the the intellectual root is Marx and Engels. I mean, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. They are kind of interested in looking at what is going on with Darwinism. They like the fact that Darwin is essentially uh, destroying any sort of uh, un religious understanding of evolution. Uh, they love that uh, because I think that they they understand that as the missing piece 
that can destroy the artifice of like religion as something that explains the origins of the world. But at the same time, they're not really interested in what Marx and what Darwin has to say about man, about mankind, and about like social interaction. They understand that as a completely different conversation. And um, the anti-Darwinian are the um, internationalists, the one that want the ones that want to focus on class, uh, the ones that want to stay away from the conversation about race, and they want people and workers to focus exclusively on class. Uh, a position that is very progressive in the context of the Gilded Age, but also a position that has problems, many problems that kind of remain in the history of the American left, but not just the American left. I couldn't help thinking when I was reading this about Darwin and Marx being two of the most important yeah. uh, writers and thinkers, I suppose, of the 19th century, and that this is how schisms develop in politics. And that's really the, what I love about your book is how ideas come into practice as well. And, and you mentioned Chinese exclusion. You know, listeners will know uh, a good deal about this. I, I spoke uh, several months ago to Ben Railton about the Chinese Exclusion Act, and we talked a great deal about race and exclusion. But one area that we didn't delve into was around socialism. Mm. How do socialists go from, as you say, this kind of traditional class only matters viewpoint and race doesn't feature to full-on exclusion of the Chinese? The answer to that is that socialists try to have it both ways. So they try to, to kind of put the two perspectives together and they try what, well, I mean, their approach is shaped by a set of facts. Um, socialists are mostly um, gathered in the East, in the East and in the Midwest. Uh, the party is mostly there, and then there are some militants that are actually on the West Coast. Um, it's a small group that has the potential to grow. I mean, when the 1877 strike kind of explodes and you have like something going on in San Francisco as well, uh, the SLP is at the real center of that protest. So it actually is sparked by a protest organized by the SLP in 1877. Uh, but then that protest turns into an anti-Chinese mob that lasts three days. And the protests by the SLP was not about that at all. But that kind of is telling of what is going on. I mean, what from the socialists, it's very, very, they are very fascinated by the fact that the workers are having such a strong voice in local politics. So the Working Men's Party of California that is not the working men's party of the United States, it's not an organization. Uh, they have a role, they managed to elect the San Francisco mayor, they kind of go on having a big influence. They've, they're fascinated by the fact that workers seem to be so present in local politics. The problem is that they are so present because of their anti-Chinese message. So from the point of view of the socialists um, and like the theories that you find articulated there, they kind of pick on the fact that Chinese workers are an exploited minority. And Chinese workers find themselves in that position because of the way in which capitalist exploitation works. They also pick on the fact that there is a specific dynamic of exploitation for the Chinese minority that is linked to the fact that they are organized in a community that is very close-knit, and that in which the American authorities don't have uh, 
alleyway into. So the, the trip are organized by specific organizations. All the public services, they are run by these Chinese companies, the six companies that are doing everything. They are kind of uh, organizing every single aspect of this community. And they realize that that is that exploitative dynamic. But what is strange is that rather than appealing to their class internationalism and saying, okay, this is an exploited minority that we need to try and organize, what they do instead, race intervenes in that dynamic and it kind of steps in as a concept that tells socialists that Chinese workers cannot be organized because they belong to another culture. And there's no possibility of dialogue between the white workers and the Chinese workers. They speak another language, they look different, they are not, they don't have the same kind of concept, they don't think in the same way. So even some of the progressive voices that you have in the party, when you get to solutions, what they say is, we cannot really do anything for Chinese workers here, we need to send them back. And then try to build socialism in China, which sounds like the classic, I mean, you hear so many politicians these days, like help them at their place. That as long as they are not around, that's fine. Uh, we just give some money and everything will be okay. So it sounds a bit like that. Some of them are genuine in their belief that there are different level of developments across the world and we cannot really interact with Chinese people at, at this moment. It's an articulate, like a, a justification of a racist position to a certain extent, but it's a justification that makes a lot of sense in the, in the intellectual context of the time. And from the point of view of like making socially, having a both way is not really successful because again, it's an argument that you can apply to contemporary politics. When, if you have someone that wants to vote for a exclusionary white supremacist party, they're not gonna vote for like the socialists that pretend to be that. They're gonna vote for the original. They're not gonna <laughs> listen to the one that comes from a different perspective that tries to articulate similar points. They will go with the one, uh, the original one. So the Working Men's Party of California was very successful. The SLP trying to be like that was not really successful. But there is this strange mentality that is important to understand to figure out how race works. Thinking about this reminds me of the divisions over nationalism and internationalism within the socialist movement as well. And where, when you take that option away uh, for the Chinese to leave, to go back to China, to be excluded from uh, the American nation, you can't do that with other groups, however. And I, I'm thinking here about African-Americans where, you know, there are very different perspectives among socialists. And what your book does a, an excellent job at is showing the different metropolitan centers across the country, New Orleans, Chicago, St. Louis, yeah. um, and, and how African-Americans and how um, Marxists felt about African-Americans or how integration and, uh, and, and class factored uh, there. So I don't know, is there a question on that, but, but maybe just to say that the Marxist and the, the socialist doctrine is fairly diverse and it's not really all that straightforward, is it? And, and maybe absolutely. the question is, is how does it differ from city to city? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I have a chapter specifically dedicated to that. And in that chapter, I adopted like a local history approach. Uh, also out of the fact that if you try and look for like a general approach that the party had, you don't find it. It's simply not there. 
there is no like a clearly theorized policy uh, and a clearly theorized approach to how to deal with African-Americans in this period. That's something that then gets developed later on, as we know. I mean, in the 20th century, you have, you have like a much full-fledged developed conversation about the problem. During the Gilded Age, that conversation, according to what I found, is simply not there. Uh, you have a set of different approaches on the basis of where the party is stronger and on the basis of where they try to interact more uh, regularly with African-Americans. The broad picture is a picture in which the socialists are very strong in some cities in the north uh, and in the Midwest, where the African-American population during the Gilded Age is still tiny, very, very small. So the reality is like for, for places like New York, for example, even though they were very close geographically, there is no regular interaction. I mean, the, the party stays within the German-American community that is like so large. We are talking about hundreds of thousands of people that is like a broad enough horizon for them. But then this part, and, and in the South, the socialists are almost no, not present at all. So in the deep South, there is, apart from New Orleans, that's the only exception, they, there's no significant socialist presence in the moment. But the pattern breaks, um, breaks up in some cities on the Mason-Dixon line, especially Cincinnati, St. Louis, a bit of Chicago as well, and New Orleans, as I was saying. Uh, in these different contexts, there are essentially many missed opportunities uh, in the sense of like there is a context in which a party that was looking better after what was happening in the African-American communities would have had a chance to have like an in way in communities that tend to be maybe separated, but are very much in need of a message that is defending rights, civil rights and workers' rights on the workplace. Uh, it happens, for example, when you have enlightened leaders like Peter H. Clark, who is one of the first African-American socialists that we know well about, who is a member of the SLP at the end of the 1870s. He has a long history as activist, especially in the Republican Party, uh, on behalf of the local community of Cincinnati. And he joins the SLP at the end of the 70s on the back of the 1877 strike, because he thinks that socialism is a movement that can help genuinely African-Americans with uh, their problems. And he articulates a message in which race and class goes together in a way that is coherent and full-fledged and developed. He essentially says that in the United States, uh, the message about class inequality is articulated in racial terms. So he links like racial difference with the problems that workers have in the United States. Um, and he offers an analysis that is much more developed than many uh, of the other leaders in the party. Um, but at the same time, he's is also an example of what doesn't work in this moment. And what doesn't work is the fact that the party is way too focused on other dynamics. It's way too focused on immigrants. It's way too focused on like um, battles of local politics in which the problems of African-Americans are not put at the center of uh, their political activity. So from this point of view, the example of St. Louis is probably even more telling because St. Louis in the 1870s, that's the main way through which African-Americans that are in the South are kind of 
trying to make their way to places like Kansas to try and leave the South that is becoming so incredibly racist in its uh, social and legal infrastructure. And socialists in that moment are very strong at the end of the 70s. They had, they had the chance to help this group of people that was going through St. Louis on their way to Kansas, but they really don't pick on that. Again, they're too focused on the other dynamics. They're struggling with the Irish. They're uh, trying to kind of establish a sort of like supremacy or at least their place in local politics. And they don't look at what is going on in the African-American community. So uh, you have like two, these two boats, like going in the dark, but not really talking to, to one another. Yeah, as you say, missed opportunities. And I was just, as you were speaking, I was thinking about the SLP's view on Native Americans in the same period. How does that add to the discourse, the intellectual discourse around socialism and social Darwinism, racial hierarchies, ideologies of race? Socialists have a rather extensive conversation about Native Americans and about their place in the American society. Um, it's not as extensive as the conversation on Chinese immigrants, which is by far the most talked about problem in this period. Um, but talking about Native Americans is a way from a socialist point of view to really get to a clarification of the relationship between socialism and these different theories of diversity that you have going on out there at the time. Um, the approach is like split into two. From one point of view, you have an anti-capitalist, anti-colonial rhetorical message that is developed and articulated in the socialist press um, that essentially says that in the conversation about civilization and savages that is so widespread at the time and in the almost universal embracing of the idea that white society is civilized and Native American society is barbaric, savage, uncivilized. Uh, socialists use the same terminology to flip the script and to make the point that it is actually capitalism to be the savage here. It's capitalism that is turning men and women into savage with its obsession with uh, the dynamic of like earning and focusing on like wealth and the way in which the individualism and so on and so forth. That's what turning the American society into a savage society. Whereas Native Americans that are untouched by um, capitalism are the ones that are more civilized. They're more humane. They remained, there is a bit of like a Rousseau's like noble savage here going in the background, but not necessarily. It's very much anti-colonial and anti-imperialist as a, as a conversation. It's not linked, and again, you can frame this in terms of like missed opportunities, not linked as you would expect with like a critique of railroads or like the uh, capitalist exploitation that is ongoing at the time that is physically destroying uh, Native American cultures at the time, even though there is that connection, but it's not full-fledged. But at the same time, you also have on the side the conversation going about um, understanding this uh, Native American uh, like society's reality and what is going on in the framework that is very dominant at the time. So like 
as a vanishing uh, culture, as a vanishing population that is left behind by this modernity that is ultimately unstoppable. The two things go together. And in that context, what uh, socialists talk extensively about, they use a lot of anthropology here. So they cling to Lewis H. Morgan a lot, and they use that as a way to frame their understanding of Native Americans as a human group that is not advanced, it's not different in, in racial terms, but it's less advanced from a social and a cultural point of view. So that's that's the framing that they have. You don't really have any sort of like attempt to break away from the Western centrism of like an idea that sees modernity in a one simple way, one single way. There's no really break away from like modernity and progress as something that is linked to industrialization. Uh, for many, it's a real struggle to see things in a different way. And surely you don't have any sort of like cultural pluralism of the type that you find with Franz Boas or like with the intellectuals that come later at the beginning of the 20th century. And there's the practical elements of it as well that you point out as well, that, you know, taking on multiple causes means detracting or maybe, um, you know, dispersing yourself too thinly politically. So yeah. uh, that ma it makes a lot of sense. In the 1890s, um, your book sort of moves on towards the later stages of your book to the 1890s, and the Socialist Labor Party faces a split. What what's the intellectual division? And you mentioned Daniel De, De Leon before, but he really comes into focus as a key personality in this split. So who's De Leon? Why is he important? And what's the split all about? So De Leon is a leader that is his success is built on the fact that his biography is kind of perfect for the type of the for the type of organization that the SLP has become in the eighteen nineties. Um, De Leon is born in 1852 in Curaçao, is at the time a small island in front of Venezuela, is part of the Dutch Empire. So he's born in an imperial context as a member of the Jewish local community. So like an enclave within an enclave in a broader empire. He's educated in Europe, uh, classical education. He studies law, he studies Latin, Latin, and Greek and all that. He learns a lot of languages. And then in the 1870s, he moves to the, the United States. He's like a cosmopolitan thinker that when he arrives in the United States, he throws himself into politics while building a career as an expert in law in several universities in New York. He's a Colombian in the 1880s, is a supporter of Grover Cleveland for a while. Then he kind of goes with Henry George, kind of goes through a, like a set of different movements in the 1880s. And then he gets to socialism at the end of the 1880s via the nationalist club, clubs of Edward Bellamy. So it gets his like American way to socialism, but then he meets Marxism and he turns into like a very hardcore supporter of Marxism. And he joins the SLP in the 1890s. Um, and when he gets into the party, the fact that he has this cosmopolitan background, the fact that he's part of the American intelligentsia, the fact that he speaks so many languages, so he can interact with the different immigrant communities that you have in the party at the time. He speaks German, he's Jewish, so he can speak with the Jews, uh, unions that are so important in the party at the time. Uh, but at the same time, he frames himself as American. So 
the contribution that it brings to the SLP is very much in line with what the party is turning itself in, into the 1890s. There is a moment of realization at the end of the 1880s that the party is too immigrant, is too closed in the German American community. And it needs to be more like much more English speaking. And he can bring that. So uh, in the 1890s, the SLP does become much more Americanized, if you want to use that term. Uh, it doesn't lose the connection with all the immigrant communities that are really the powerhouse of the party, but it brings, tries to kind of carve its own way between being very much more attuned with uh, English-speaking workers while retaining the support of the Im immigrant communities. And this comes with a clarification also on the position about race and on the conversation between the two poles that I was talking about, the, inter the internationalists and like the scientific rationalists, the position embraced in the 1890s is very much a position focused on class. So uh, class is the unifying factor on which we should be focusing on. But at the same time, there is like an attention to what is going on in terms of like racial diversity. Um, and there is a systematization of like the different additions to the various theories that, that I was talking about. Again, Morgan becomes very, very important. From this point of view, what we were saying about Native Americans is useful because it helps explaining what the position is. It's like there's no racial diversity, but there are different levels of social and cultural development. And that's the position that we hold, but we want to bring everyone at the same stage and take them to socialism. So it becomes a bit more coherent, the situation. Um, the problem is that by the end of the 1890s, you get to a situation in which the Leon that has done some good things for the party is also incredibly controversial and incredibly, to an extent, narrow-minded leader. He, again, squanders a lot of opportunities of like engaging more closely with the American Federation of Labor, with the populists in this period, with the Knights of Labor, because he has a very adamant and specific understanding of Marxism and he wants to pursue in that way. And this position becomes untenable and very problematic. And it's holding the socialist movement back at this point, because in the meantime, you have the Amer American capitalism developing but also hitting like so many stumble blocks, crisis. The crisis of the 1890s started in 1893 is a moment of growth for the American socialist movement, but a, move, a moment that would require more interaction with other approaches in other parties, especially the, the populist movement that is making an inroad and has become so strong in the South, in the Southwest, in the Midwest, and in other parts of the country. The Leon doesn't see that. Um, the SLP at the end of the 90s has become too small for what the socialist movement can be. And that's what leads to the split at the end of the 1899, which is like a physical, very like type of clash that happens during like uh, a congress of the party, chairs smashed on people's head and things like that. And it, <laughs> yeah, it's very quite interesting to read about that. But then it leads to the SOP becoming a smaller party and the foundation of the Socialist Party of America, led by Eugene Debs, that then leads the socialist movements during the progressive era. So I'm going to get to Debs and the Socialist Party of America. Just to say, when I was looking up the Socialist Labor Party, the one that still exists today, 
calls themselves the De- Leonists. Yeah. So they yeah. very much see themselves. And that's the party. I think that's a great point that they didn't really connect with populism. I mean, we have a podcast on on the show about populism in Texas. You know, it yeah. just didn't didn't take off in the rural parts of America. It was a urban immigrant uh, party and De, De Leon missed a, a beat. Um, yeah. All right, let's let's move on to the Socialist Party of America. 1901, the year has always struck me as one of the most important years on record. You know, like there's there's books about this. There's like, you know, 1848 or 1968 or 1492. To me, there should be a book about 1901. <laughs> um, and in that year, the Socialist Party of America is formed in Indiana by Eugene V. Debs, as you mentioned. How does this change the dialogue on race in America and within the socialist movement? I mean, I make the point that much of what you see in the SLP during the Gilded Age you keep seeing in the SBA. So there is a continuity. Uh, that debate between different positions on the verge of like theories of race versus internationalism, that kind of stays around during the SBA period. Um, so you have, the SBA is a much broader tent. You have leaders from several parts of the country, leaders with different variety of uh, backgrounds and history and historical baggage behind them. Uh, you have leading like immigrant leaders like Victor Berger, uh, Oscar Ameringer in Oklahoma, but at the same time you had Eugene Debs that despite his, the immigrant origins of his parents is very much Americanized and very much a Midwestern uh, type of figure. So you have a lot, you have for, for a moment W.B. Du Bois, Hubert Harrison, leaders, African-American leaders that seen socialism like a possibility uh, for the African-American minority. Um, but what you see is like an attempt. For example, I mean, I focus a bit in the, in the conclusions of the book, I focus a bit on the founding uh, Congress of 1901, because the founding Congress is attended by several African-American members that make the point that there should be a specific blank on African-American working class and that they would require like a special separate type of message for them because their situation is specific and it comes on the back of slavery and it comes on the back of reconstruction. So the SBA allows for separate messages. In that conversation, there's also uh, some members that say, no, we shouldn't be like dealing in specific appeals to specific group of the population because we are all part of the same working class. Uh, but the position that we have maybe now achieved within, I mean, that now is much more present at least in terms of like, no, we are not all the same. We need to have like different approaches on the basis of like historically what specific parts of the population have gone through, that is a position that finds much more room in the SBA. Even though there is no full clarification on what to do on the problem, not just with African-Americans, but on race in general, uh, there continues to be some degree of confusion and different approaches depending on the different parts of the country on like how to square uh, class and race as two poles that create inequality in the American capitalist system. Okay, Lorenzo, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about why this matters for today. One of the things that the podcast tries to do is explain how 
the Gilded Age and Progressive Era has a legacy and it's it and the history is important for today. I was thinking about when we started talking about one of the major criticisms of the American left today and, and certainly American socialism is that the ideas are too diverse, they're too divergent at times. Um, I don't know, I don't think that's entirely true about race, but uh, it's certainly true within the party and how things are put into practice is a major bone of contention. What are the lessons for socialists today that we can draw from your book and from the study of socialism in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era? Some of them are like very much connected to the type of debate that I was talking about in the sense of probably there is a general agreement now on the fact that a class-only message doesn't really cut through, doesn't work, doesn't make any sense. You need to have an emphasis on race. You need to understand that different racial minorities have different types of political needs that need to be addressed uh, specifically. There is a message that, I don't know, perhaps in the United States is 100% clear, uh, but if you step outside the United States, that's not clear at all. I mean, I'm from Italy. I live in the UK. Each kind of, of these countries have a different conversation about the uh, this topic, and there are parts even of Europe. I mean, if I if we did this same conversation in Italy, we would need to approach the conversation in a completely different way. And what I just said wouldn't be clear at all for any organization on the left. So that's something that needs to be said, and it's very very important. I think that another thing that you can take out of my book that is very important for contemporary politics is. There is so much confusion about what socialism is, so much. It's very much linked to communism, Stalin, the USSR, and the Cold War, and all that. Whereas socialism is actually something different. And it's very much, I mean, the main incarnations of socialism, you cannot have like a single definition, but, but the main incarnations of socialism, they tend to be 90% democratic, very much compatible with democracy. Uh, very much focused on like improving human well-being in general. Um, and so we need to have a better understanding of what socialism is to have a conversation that makes sense in the contemporary context. Uh, one last thing that I want to mention is I think that the book tells quite, I mean, for someone that is interested in the history of the left and from someone that comes from the left politically as well, the book, I hope, uh, is not doesn't doesn't like paint a great picture. I mean, these socialists were not very good on understanding what was going on at the time. It does not, it does not paint a very good picture of them. No, no exactly. So it's like these they had so many problems, and it's like they they were not doing a great job. Um, but there is the on this a couple of things can be said. The first is that. Historically, there are moments in which the articulation of like progressive idea is simply impossible because the context doesn't allow you to do that. Um, and that's something that you kind of need to understand when you study different periods of history. Uh, that doesn't mean that the idea that you have is wrong. It means that the landscape is one of a kind. Um, and so you kind of need to understand what the landscape is telling you and you kind of need to take that message historically and see how it has developed across time. Uh, and the Gilded Age is a specific moment that needs to be understood in the context of the time. 
uh, because otherwise you're kind of lost. Well, that sort of validates uh, my first question about why we need to start with definitions and contextualization. So yeah. Lorenzo, yeah. thanks so much for joining me on the show. Your book Thank is you. fantastic. It's called Workers of All Colors Unite, Race and the Origins of American Socialism. And uh, I'm, I'm so delighted that you, uh, you joined me on the show. Thank you very much for the question. It has been great to talk with you. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.